and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. From the buggy capital of the 19th century world, aka Columbus, Ohio, I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Joining me from the 19th century base of operations for Emperor Norton I, aka San Francisco, is James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. We're back from the holidays, all refreshed and ready to face a new year. Come on, 2018, do your worst. But I'll tell you what is not the worst. Dr. James Ricker, a public historian and cultural resources manager based in Oklahoma, which was the 19th century capital of relocated Native Americans, I suppose. Today, we are going to talk to Dr. Ricker about his academic and professional background and his long and varied career in history and archaeology. We will also talk about some of his adventures doing archaeological fieldwork, which includes mammoths, wolves, and everyday humans. What is your name and what do you do? Well, my name is uh, Dr. James C. Ricker, and I am also the owner and of a cultural resource management company in Guthrie, Oklahoma. I've operated this company for over 16 years, from about 2001 into the present, as the owner-operator and chief project coordinator, where I've completed hundreds of archaeological and historic surveys throughout Oklahoma. My, my duties in this position include pre-field research of documents in relevant archives and libraries, followed by subsequent field surveys. I also conduct test excavations and subsequent reports that I submit to the state archaeologists with recommendations pertaining to compliance with Section 106 of the Historic Preservation Act. All right. I think we'll probably come back and talk about that a bit because that sounds really interesting. Before we get to that point, though, uh, what is your general academic and professional background? Well, I was, uh, I was born and raised in Oklahoma City, as you can probably tell from my accent, <laughs> uh, where I graduated uh, from Putnam City North High School in 1982. I, I can't believe that it's already been, what, 35 years ago. It seems like just yesterday that I graduated from high school. But uh, after graduating from high school in 1982, I attended Oklahoma State University until 1986, I believe it was, without graduating because of depleted funds. And at that point, I returned to Oklahoma City where I finished a Bachelor of Science degree in uh, Liberal Arts and General Studies from the University of Central Oklahoma in 1990. And I did that while waiting tables at local restaurants, which kind of prepared me for my subsequent position as a restaurant consultant, which I also do part-time or full-time in addition to the cultural resource management. After I completed the bachelor's degree, I sat out a year and then enrolled back at the University of Central Oklahoma in their graduate history program. And there I received my Master of Arts degree in history in 1993 with emphasis and training in museum studies. That's kind of where my, my career path took a kind of a fateful turn. I, during my graduate history program, I took a class entitled Introduction to Archaeology, and I'd always been fascinated with archaeology, and this class exposed me not only to the history terms and basic practices of archaeology, but it also introduced me to some of the professional state archaeologists at that time from the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey who spoke sometimes as guest lecturers in the class. And from there, I learned of the various job opportunities available in the archaeological field, including entry-level jobs such as survey and excavation crew members on temporary archaeological projects. And uh, after graduating with my master's degree in history museum studies and getting, like, like many students, getting no responses to numerous resumes that I was sending, I was being uh, rejected, I guess, due to my lack of experience. And I remembered the advice given by the visiting state archaeologists in that class. And 
I then began applying to private cultural resource management companies with the hope of getting a temporary position as a crew member. And I did this, I, I, I did this by applying to different cultural resource management companies in the surrounding states using lists that I had obtained from those offices, state historic preservation offices in those states. And surprisingly, I was quickly hired as a, as a survey, uh, survey archaeological crew member on a small project in eastern Oklahoma, which then led to a succession of similar jobs throughout Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana. I even had a small stint in Georgia, surprisingly, which was kind of outside my area, but and then you don't turn down any jobs that are offered to you at that point. That's right. <laughs> and uh, not only did I uh, thoroughly enjoy this type of work, but I gained an invaluable four years of public history experience, which led to my hiring as a staff archaeologist and archaeological curator at the Museum of the Great Plains in Lawton, Oklahoma in 1997. The experience I gained during this four years as an archaeological crew member was instrumental in getting me the job, the, in the, getting me the first salary position. In fact, this was the only museum job that I applied for since I had applied for all those other museum jobs four years earlier with no success. And obviously, it was a practical experience that I gained on the, all those other temporary archaeological jobs. That was the missing link. It was the experience that got me the job as a museum curator in my first museum job. So. Uh, subsequently, I worked at the Museum of the Great Plains as an archaeologist for four years from 1997 to 2001. There I learned all the managerial skills of operating an archaeological cultural resource management unit as well as uh, the skills needed to manage a museum's archaeological collections. The, the Museum of the Great Plains was interesting and, and, and very beneficial to my training because it was actually only one of two federal government approved repositories in Oklahoma for federal archaeological collections. So. Uh, not only was the training and the experience very good, but also the networking opportunities were, were very good there, too. In 2001, I accepted a position with the Oklahoma Historical Society as a curator of collections at a three-building museum complex in Guthrie, Oklahoma, that included the Oklahoma Territorial Museum, the Oklahoma Publishing Museum, and the Carnegie Library. And it was in 2001 that I also started my own cultural resource management company, conducting archaeological and historic surveys throughout Oklahoma using the skills that I had acquired over the previous eight years as a crew member and also as an archaeological curator in Lawton. Up until 2010, I was conducting as many as 30 projects a year, but after 2010, I, I substantially reduced the number of those projects that I accepted due to my entry into the Oklahoma State University History PhD program. Currently, I only conduct a few archaeological projects each year, except for one longtime client that I had, which is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And I, I, only, I, I reduced that number just because I, I want to transition into a new career role as an online public history professor. Upon entering Oklahoma State's history PhD program in 2010, I had to choose my second and third fields. As you know here, there's three fields involved with a PhD program. And for those two fields, additional fields, I chose U.S. Western history and public history as obvious choices. And part of the public history field requirement, I completed an internship with the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey. It, seem, it seems like it was redundant in the fact that I had been working with the Archaeological Survey for years and years and years. I knew all the people there, but it was an obvious choice for an internship to learn some other some of the other tasks that are, that are in the background there at the Archaeological Survey that I never participated in as a, as a private cultural resource management. It gave me an inside perspective of, of what was done with my reports when I submitted them to the Archaeological Survey. So it was kind of an interesting experience there. In this capacity, I, I helped review cultural resource management research papers that were submitted by other cultural resource management companies. And I also cataloged and curated the artifacts from 
a recently excavated historic antebellum farm in southeast Oklahoma, which was also interesting because Oklahoma didn't have that many antebellum farms or, or plantations like like you had further to the east and the southeast. So it was, it's one of the very few sites in Oklahoma that actually had an antebellum cultural feel to it or, uh, or background to it. So it was a very interesting project to catalog those artifacts. And uh, subsequently then I, I completed the PhD in history at Oklahoma State University in December of uh, 2016. Do you see in your work that you've been kind of researching a blend of human and natural history or do you see a separation there or is it all one thing in your mind? Oh yeah, you, you always have to keep in mind the environment in which, and the context of the environment in which the archeological finds are situated. One of the uh, archaeologists that I worked with for years uh, worked, worked at the University of Oklahoma as part of the archaeological survey. He was, he was interested in, in, during his excavations, of examining snails that were found at the same level as artifacts. And he, he documented, he proved that certain species of snails that lived in the grass or lived in the soils were actually good indicators of the date of the site because they evolved over time and the ranges of those snails fluctuated from time to time. So by documenting the presence of certain species of snails, you could determine the, the age of the site. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting the way various tools in terms of natural history can be used when analyzing the finds in your excavations of determining the link to the site and the context of the site in terms of human activity. So what were your uh, primary topics of research interest when you were working on your thesis and your dissertation and all that? Were you focusing more on archaeology and maybe excavation techniques, or were you focused on a historical topic? Well, I don't think there's any question that my first research interest pertains to archaeological research or cultural resource management. That's that's in a public history sense. And as I said earlier, I've, I've always found archaeology to be fascinating, and that's because I always found that the older the history is, the more interesting it is to me. And I should emphasize here that there was a history here in North America before the introduction of Europeans. And like I said, although Native Americans didn't leave written paper documents, they certainly left the artifacts. And and many of those, many of the artifacts or the the objects that they left were, of course, symbolic. They were symbolic references to their passing in the soil or on on rock faces with rock art, or even in their rituals, uh, symbolic rituals. And just just as the native peoples left symbolic references to their passing on the cultural landscape, so did Europeans leave symbolic traces on the uh, Western cultural landscape. It's because of my background in archaeology and artifact interpretation that I decided upon a dissertation research project that would, would hopefully uncover and utilize European-American uh, symbolism deposited on the American physical and cultural landscape to use those to uh, interpret the changing nature of the American West. And thus, I completed my dissertation that was entitled uh, Signs of the Times, a Symbolism of a Changing Order in the American West, which kind of leads into my, my teaching interests. And of course, my teaching interest in includes uh, anything in the public history field, including the two courses that I've already taught here at Southern New Hampshire University, which are uh, Introduction to Public History and Museum Collections Management. And at some point, I, I, I wouldn't mind teaching a course uh, maybe about the Civil War, and I also would like to teach a, possibly an introductory course in archaeology. But th there's a problem with that, though, because obviously it might be unlikely, considering that in the art anthropological field, that archaeology is an anthropological field and, and not a history field, and instructors, instructors with anthropology degrees are usually assigned to teach archaeological classes. So uh, possibly that could be recommend, uh, remedied with the development of an archaeological class tailored to the general history or public history fields. 
This actually brings up a question that I've kind of played with often in my in my own head and in random conversations with other people too. How do you see history and anthropology and archaeology, how do they work together? When you say that archaeology classes are often taught by anthropologists, why, why do you think that is? Why isn't it history? Or what do they have in common and why are they also still considered separate fields in, in your own experience? Yeah, well, they're, they're all they're all grouped, as, of course, as we all know, they're all grouped in the social sciences field. And I, and I think that's been kind of one of the big debates over the last, say, 100 years is that many of the social sciences have, have become highly specialized. And uh, but they all they're all they're all basically concerning the, the behavioral patterns of human cultures and human populations over time and space. Of course, anthropology has more, even though it's a social science and archaeology, archaeology is basically examining how artifacts that have been deposited on the, on the landscape can indicate or interpret the behavior of those populations who deposited them. So even though, even though they're all grouped in the social sciences field, they all have their particular methods and techniques in, in determining that and, and, and interpreting how uh, human behavior has, has changed over time. The most common distinction that I've heard from people is that anthropologists and archaeologists tend to build their understanding of history through physical artifacts that were left behind by previous civilizations, whereas historians tend to focus on written writing. Uh, and so history tends to focus on developments that have happened since the invention of writing and things that were written down. Is that kind of how you conceptualize it too, or do you conceptualize it differently? Well, well having, I, have, I have the benefit of, of actually working at, as a historian. You know, my academic training was in history and museum studies, but I actually have the benefit of and the insight of actually working as an archaeologist where I can actually see see the, the, the artifacts in the field. I can actually see those, and like, and like I said earlier, and using those artifacts as documents in themselves. They may not be written documents, but each one of those, those artifacts, at least if they are diagnostic artifacts, are those that can tell you what time they were deposited, because certain, certain artifacts like projectile points and potsherds, there were certain types of projectile points and potsherds that were only used at specific times. So in a way, after, after you've seen this a number of times, and it's, it's, it's like a pattern, and it's like reading any document, you can actually read a, an archeological site and you can read the behavior of those people that deposited just by picking up their artifacts very often. Once you've seen that pattern over and over and over, you can actually pick up a, a projectile point in the field and say, ah, this was a Wichita Indian site circa you know, 17 or, you know, uh, 1830, well, not say, let's say, let's say it was a late prehistoric site. You can look at an artifact and say, yes, this site was inhabited from the mid 1300s to maybe the late 1700s. It was probably a late, a late prehistoric Wichita Indian site, because that, those artifacts are actually telling you a lot about the archeological site itself and the people that deposited. So there, there is a, there is a historic record. It may be a prehistoric record in, in, in a European interpretation, but it is a history. It is a history of people's as they left it, they are they are actually leaving a not a written history, but an artifact history of what they were doing at any time and place. So that's kind of hard to explain to somebody who maybe to a historian that has never experienced that. But for someone like myself that has actually experienced that for many, many years, I can see how archaeology can be used to document the prehistory of other peoples, even if they don't have a written history themselves. I find it really interesting, too, in a lot of the points that a lot of times we'll get students who want to explore these very 
they're very passionate about prehistory topics and they want to explore the history of, you know, a certain geography or an animal. And we really have to kind of rein them in and, <laughs> and let them know, well, history is this and this would probably fall under archaeology or geology or anthropology. So I think that they're important distinctions to make. To expound upon that, too, uh, working as an archaeologist, uh, every state archaeologist or SHPO office, the State Historic Preservation Office, has a list of what they consider to be approved cultural resource managers, private cultural resource managers that conduct cultural resource management projects in their states. Each archaeologist on that list have to meet certain guidelines set forth by federal government specifications. And as far as I know, I'm still the only person on that list of about 30 different consultants that has a history degree rather than a anthropology or archaeology degree. And the only reason I'm on that list is because I came through the back door, if you will, working as a, uh, as a, as a temporary crew member on various projects in, in, the, in the southern United States area, which then led into a history museum, and uh, which then the experience between the, the, the work as a temporary crew member and a salaried archaeological curator in a history museum then gave me the experience to be added to that list. So it, it's kind of ironic or kind of strange how sometimes things work out in your, in your career path. Yeah, and I actually wanted to back up to something you said earlier about your career path. You had mentioned that when you first finished your BA program, you started working for a resource management company, unless I'm getting ahead of myself, maybe it was an archaeological company, but there was the first company where you got onto the crew, where you were conducting surveys and all of that. That initial type job that you got, was is that something that is open to a lot of entry-level people? Are they looking specifically for historians? Do they hire basically anybody with a college degree? What types of requirements do they generally have for those types of positions? Yeah, actually, I, I got that first job after I finished the master's degree. But yes, you're, you are correct that most of these cultural resource management companies are looking for somebody with either a history degree or, or an anthropology degree. It has to be something to do with the social sciences normally. I did meet one or two individuals that had a degree in something totally different than history or anthropology. Uh, I think I had, there was one guy, one young man who had a degree in journalism, if I remember, a bachelor's degree in journalism. But I think obviously he was, I think he was also related to some other crew member and they were really, <laughs> needing, they, they, they were really needing warm bodies, you know, to get, get the project going. But, but generally, yes, they, they all require a college degree and preferably it is in anthropology and, or in some other related field like history or museum studies. Obviously, the higher level of education you have, the higher level of supervisory roles that you will get once you're on, uh, that you once you've been hired for those. But yes, there there is an ongoing need uh, for crew members on these various projects. All a student needs to do is contact the state archaeologist or state historic preservation office in each state to to obtain a list of cultural resource management companies, and then call all those companies and see if they have any upcoming projects where they, they might need crew members. And again, for me, it was a great way of breaking into the public history field and getting the experience I needed to finally get that first job in a uh, salary position at a museum. Well, that's also a good point for students who are thinking about, you know, how can I use my history degree and that don't really think about going out to take advantage of these very practical applications or these internships. You know, they're focused on research, they're focused on writing, but they don't necessarily, unless they're public historians, they're interested in historical societies. They don't really think about these additional opportunities and branching out from something that is specifically connected to history. So I think that's a really good lesson for them. And one thing that has to be remembered about the cultural resource management or public, public history field is that it, it, you really have to have 
it, it's really geared towards towards a specific mindset or a specific type of person. You have to be. It's better if you're single, if you're younger and you're single, and you don't you're not tied down to a certain location where you can go and live in a hotel for a, a month or two while you're conducting this. You're working as a as a crew member on one of these projects, and you also have to enjoy being outdoors. I mean, even though it sounds sounds glamorous of, of walking through the fields and and trees and forests and sometimes even swamps. I have some interesting stories I can tell you, especially working down in Louisiana in the bayou swamps. It's not always as glamorous as it seems. Some projects are better than others. It's much better to to conduct a archaeological surface survey in the, on the plains of Oklahoma or Kansas than it is working in the bayous of Louisiana. And you have to be prepared to work in those kind of conditions or, or, just, or just kind of cherry pick which projects you want. There's enough out there at, at times where you can cherry pick which project you want to work on you don't have to uh, endure some such hardships as spiders and snakes and even alligators. <laughs> I, can, I, I, oh. I, I have some interesting stories that I could tell you. But yeah, yeah. It, but, it, but for most projects, most of the time, the projects are very interesting. They're very intriguing and they're very enjoyable if you like working outdoors and uh, getting paid to look for prehistoric artifacts or historic artifacts. It's really kind of a fascinating field. Yeah, I have a couple of my friends from high school have gone into anthropology and archaeology. Uh, one of them works for the Forest Service and is always out on these trips, like you're talking about, these field research trips, looking for Native American artifacts or whatever. And so he always posts on Facebook his latest adventures, tromping across the wilderness of the far west. He's he's based in New Mexico, but he kind of goes into other areas around there, Colorado and all that. And it is interesting. He posts stuff on Facebook about, you know, the most recent run in with drug dealers or yeah. snakes or, you know, <laughs> yeah. the truck breaking down 300 miles from the nearest town. It, it just sounds like it's one of those exciting lives. It's it's also, as you say, kind of out in the middle of nowhere most of the time. So I don't know how much how, how jealous of it I am. But in some but every now and then, of course, he'll post an amazing picture of standing next to this massive vista or something, which, of course, makes it all seem worthwhile. And it's just kind of an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. Working in, the, working in the far west would be an ideal conditions. So generally, at least if you're working in the in the, in the Rockies or in the mountains or in the in the foothills, the soil is not that deep. So generally, those those archaeological uh, investigations are surface surveys only. You don't have to do any excavation, and you know generally you have very few snakes or other other type of critters out there that might deter you from doing it. But uh, and it's, it's a beautiful environment. Like I said, though, some locations and some projects are better than others, and you just need to cherry pick which which project you want to work on. For you personally, what was your favorite project, and what are your top three finds? Okay, well, I can I can name two really quick, and probably think of a third if I think about it much. I'd like say the first first one that was that was fascinating. Working at the Museum of the Great Plains, we would get at least one or two phone calls a year from either county workers or farmers that had found or uncovered mammoth remains in somewhere in southwestern Oklahoma, and then we would be called in to investigate it to see if if, if any human artifacts were associated with it. Um, during one of these projects, we we actually discovered a uh, a wolf skeleton actually eroding out of the creek bank and it looked like it was in almost perfect condition of course as we know there, there are no wolves in oklahoma anymore there hasn't been for over 100 years when I, when I looked down at the skeleton as i was looking down over the bank I, first of all i couldn't recognize what the skeleton was the skull was something that i had never seen before i could see it was a canine with the, with the long canine teeth but i couldn't determine what kind of animal this was because i'd never seen this before and when we collected the bones of course it had a very very high what we call a sagittal crest on top of the skull when we collected these bones and took it back to the museum and compared it with some other items in the in the collections in the in the faunal collections, we determined that in fact it was a it was a large wolf, and it had to have been over at least a hundred years old, probably longer than that. But it was just eroding out. So, the combination of excavating a mammoth as well as finding a wolf skeleton that we could add to our museum 
bottle collections was uh, rather exciting. And then uh, a few years later, when I was working as, as I was working as a as a private cultural resource management, working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, I was hired to survey several private, large private ranches up in northwest Oklahoma, surveying the the exterior of the properties along the fence. We called it a, a fire break or a fence line survey. Before you go out on any project, you you go you go to some archives, usually at the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey, to examine their maps to see if there are are any previously known archaeological sites in that area. And it also gives you an idea of what might, what you might find in the area. During the pre-field research, I found there are several sites located on the property that other archaeologists had found in previous years. But like I said earlier, once you've been doing this long enough, you can actually pick a place on the top uh, on the topography map and say that would be a good place for a, an archaeological site there. And it was in the very back of the property, about two miles away. And it was a very hot day, and I'm walking along the, what was it, the, the north fence, and I had to get way over to the west side of the fence. And, of course, after an hour or two walking in 95-degree heat, you kind of start losing losing your focus a little bit you're just wanting to get over with the project you're still walking your survey route but you're you kind of lose your focus a little bit and around the back side there i, I crossed the creek and i started going up this terrace and, and i start seeing uh, what we call flakes lithic flakes scattered all over the ground and that kind of snapped me back to focus and i realized at that point that i was indeed on that spot that i had noticed on the map several hours early that this might be a good spot and sure enough it was i was on that location it was right along the fence there were you know, lithics, lithic flakes, as, as you know, as the, as the uh, native peoples are flaking a rock, you, got, you get debris that's being flaked off all over the place. And the higher the concentration, the better the chance that that's actually a habitation site rather than a temporary campsite. Uh, on the other side of the fence, I could see an eroded area that was facing away from me. And I know from previous experience that if you go look at this eroded area, it's what, what, what we call a slump, where there was a, there was a lot of exposed soil coming off, the, uh, off of a, an exposed bank that I would be able to see exactly what was lying under the ground there. So I, I went across the fence there, and as I stepped off a little one-foot drop, I just about stepped on about half of a broken Native American pot, a prehistoric pot. The potsherds were laying there broken. Right in the middle of the potsherds, there were two projectile points. And this, this doesn't happen very often because in the history of archaeology, many of these sites have been picked over over generations and generations by local local farmers and local townspeople who, who often went out and... A treasure hunted or, or, you know, artifact hunted after church. You know, it was a social event to go out and look for artifacts. But many of these sites, at least if they were closer to the road, have been picked over and you don't find pottery shirts and projectile points laying on the surface. They've been collected a long time ago. Well, this, this was a site that was far away from any road. It was back two miles on this, on a, on a family ranch that had been in this family for a hundred years. The site turned out to be a perfectly preserved late prehistoric Wichita Indian site, complete with the, the pottery shirts and the projectile points. And even coming out of the side of the bank, there was a plethora of processed bison bones with broken, broken what we call green fracture of the bones, being that they were cracked open while they were fresh and the, and the Native Americans were extracting the marrow. Some of the bones were burned. So it was a site uh, that was that was pristine. It was undamaged. It was unspoiled, and it was basically in the same condition as it was as when it was abandoned, probably 400 years earlier. So that, that, that is, it's, it's those kind of sites. When you kind of find you find those kind of sites, it makes everything worthwhile. It makes everything exciting, and and it renews your efforts for the next project. So you owned your own company for a little while, or you you still own it, but you're just not as active as you were. Tell us a bit about how that business operates. How did you decide to start your own business versus working for somebody else? How do you find work? 
what do your clients look like? Who are your clients? What do you do for them? That kind of thing. A, a typical day in my position as a cultural resource archaeologist and, and company owner, before I describe that in detail, I think it, it'd be probably wise to first preface it with a, a discussion, a brief discussion of the, of the Historic Preservation Act of 1966, as well as Section 106 of the same act. For those who are not aware of the Historic Preservation Act, in 1966, the federal government enacted the Preservation Act that is the main legislation that regulates the historic preservation of the country's cultural treasures for future generations and also provides for the basis for and, and also generates the need for trained public historians like cultural resource managers or, uh, say, museum professionals, archivists, park rangers, as well as a host of other similar professions in the field. And specifically, according to the wording in the Historic Preservation Act itself, the act does several things. Uh, for example, it, it measures, including financial and technical assistance, different technique, techniques that foster conditions under which the modern society preserves and prehistoric and historic resources that it can add to the productive harmony and fulfill social and economic and other requirements. And just basically generally pres uh, preserves it for present and future generations. And the Historic Preservation Act also provides leadership in the preservation of the prehistoric and historic resources of the United States, which is, again, what I do as a cultural resource manager. And it also administers federally owned and administered resources and uh, as, a, as an act of stewardship for future generations. And it also contributes to the preservation of, of non-federally owned prehistoric and historic resources and gives maximum encouragement to organizations and individuals when they're undertaking preservation efforts. And it also encourages public and private preservation utilization of usable resources when uh, protecting the nation's history and, and prehistory. And it also assists state and local governments, Indian tribes, and even uh, Native, American, uh, Native Hawaiian tribes, and also builds a national trust for historic preservation. And it also requires states to create and maintain both a state historic preservation office, which we know is a SHPO office, that's SHPO, as well as a state archaeologist office to research, document, and otherwise preserve each state's cultural resources. And I, I mentioned the SHPO office earlier, and that's what the Natural, National Register does, is that it, it, it establishes both a SHPO and a state archaeologist office to, to uh, preserve and protect the nation's cultural resources um, as stipulated by the National Register of Historic Places and also includes a section 106 of the historic preservation act and 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 the section section 106 is is the is the most important section for me as a public historian or as a cultural resource management section 106 stipulates that any federal agency or private organization that has direct or indirect jurisdiction over a proposed federal or federally assisted undertaking and that also includes federally financed uh, undertaking in any state has to determine if their proposed project is going to negatively impact any known or unknown archaeological or cultural resources that, that might not be recoverable. So that agency, through Section 106 of the Historic Preservation Act, must then submit their proposal to the state archaeologist, who then determines whether a private cultural resource management company needs to be hired to go out and look at that property to see if any cultural resources are going to be destroyed. And so that's where I come in. When a, when a, when a company is determined by the state archaeologists that it needs to have a project conducted, the state archaeologists will furnish them a, the list, the list of approved cultural resource management companies in that state. And then they if, they if they choose me, I will submit a bid proposal. And if it is accepted, I become their hired private cultural resource manager. 
that is assigned with the task of fulfilling their Section 106 obligations and take into account the effect of their development undertaking and how it might impact the cultural resources. So once I've been selected, I begin the archaeological investigation with some pre-field research. And I do this by going down and visiting certain archival depositories, it's most notably at the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey, that's the state archaeologist's office. And there I compare maps of the project area that have been furnished to me by the agency in question, the agency or company that is conducting the project. And I compare those with maps and records at the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey to determine whether any known archaeological service uh, resources are already located within that proposed project area. And once that has been determined, I then enter the actual project area in the field and I begin an archaeological survey uh, where through a com combination of ground surface inspection or subsurface shovel testing, I can determine whether there are any buried cultural artifact deposits on that property that might be impacted by the project. And if I deem the site potentially significant, I can also excavate more substantially through one meter uh, test excavations. And sometimes that's determined by the state archaeologist. Maybe sometimes I'll, re I'll send in a report and the state, state archaeologist before he or she approves it will say, no, I think you need to go out and uh, conduct some more extensive excavations, including one meter test excavations. And so then with all the data that I had collected through my pre-field research, I, I submit that report to the state archaeologist. And again, those offices will then either approve or disapprove my recommendations. They, they, sometimes they might, the state archaeologist might have some stipulations for the, for the agency or the company to do some additional work out there. And, but it's basically, generally in this way, the, the, the Historic Preservation Act and the state archaeologist and the, and the state historic preservation office and private companies like mine, cultural resource management companies, are entrusted to protect the cultural resources and the history for future generations. Before we go, do you have anything to recommend today for us, uh, Jim? Yeah, I think so. Uh, my history-related recommendation is more of a philosophical recommendation applied to the field of history. I think as historians, we are, in effect, truth seekers, you know. We seek out primary sources in the forms of written documents, oral histories, archaeological artifacts, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes three-dimensional objects that we find in the museums. And we use these to interpret their meaning and develop a viable and probable truthful history. And with that in mind, I would recommend to any history student to study the uh, ancient philosopher Plato's allegory of the cave in his, uh, his, his, his well-known book, The Republic. Anybody familiar with this allegory? In the, in the allegory of the cave, Plato discusses how people who have lived in a cave their entire lives can only believe what they've been told to believe about the reality or truth of shadows or images that are projected upon the, the wall of the cave. And in Plato's view, how could these prisoners know any, anything other than the truth that was told to them by others if they were never allowed to search for the truth themselves. And Plato's allegory here is, is a brilliant lesson in critical thinking that teaches the student that any truth can be found with personal dedication and perseverance if they develop the habit of contemplating and seeking the truth for themselves. So I, I highly recommend that all history students study Plato's allegory of the cave as a philosophical concept that can be readily applied to the history discipline. I like that, dipping way back into the past. Great. Mm -hmm. hey, like, like I said earlier, the older the better. Yes. <laughs> All right. And uh, James Fennessy, what do you have for us today? That's actually a really great suggestion. <laughs> so I don't know if I can beat it. I don't even know if it's a competition, but <laughs> it's kind of a uh... competition. Just just show us your brilliance completely independent from Mr. Ricker's brilliance. Oh, wow. 
connected to part of the conversation that we were having today. The De Young Museum in San Francisco currently has an exhibit on um, Teotihuacan. So they're looking at various artifacts that were uncovered and trying to flesh out a little bit more of the history of the city and the region. So I haven't made it to see the exhibit yet, but I've looked at some of the artifacts that they have online, and I'm really interested in going to see that. So kind of that combination of archaeology and history that is part of our conversation today. Yeah, they are, they are certainly intertwined. Archaeology and history are certainly intertwined. They both seek to uncover and discover uh, the truthful historic interpretation of past cultures, whether prehistoric or historic. It's, it's one and the same. Uh, my recommendation for today is a book by Brian Alexander called Glass House. The subtitle is The 1% Economy and the Shattering of the All-American Town. This is a book about basically the industrial history of a city in Ohio called Lancaster, which is about 30 miles from my house, actually. But the book itself gives a brief history of kind of the rise and fall of American industry, focusing on this one town. And so this one town of Lancaster was home to one of the world's biggest glass-making corporations. And after World War II, of course, it, just like much of the American economy, it boomed. And everything was looking good until the 1980s-ish, when suddenly everything started to fall apart. When there was the breakout of leveraged buyouts and hostile takeovers and all of that, there was a series of changes in ownership of this company. Each change in ownership led to the further deterioration of the company, so that by the time we get to the 1990s and the early 21st century, the, com the entire company is pretty much dead. And the entire town had been dependent on this company. And so the book is about what happens to a small town. I forget what the population is, probably 50,000, give or take, in Lancaster. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, uh, a fairly small town that was completely dependent on this one economic driver and what happens when that economic driver collapses. And it paints a very depressing picture, as you can probably imagine. Ohio is known for having a, a major drug problem these days, and places like Lancaster are kind of the centerpieces of uh, the drug businesses and all of that, because there's just a lot of formerly employed people that had really good careers, made good money, and suddenly that's all gone away. And so what happens to a town after that happens? And it's it demonstrates a lot of the stuff that, that we've been talking about kind of politically these days, uh, income inequality, deindustrialization, what happens to people on the ground when these massive changes in American finance and business happen? How does that actually play out on Main Street? And it paints a really interesting, also kind of a very depressing portrait. And it's also really well written. Brian Alexander is not a historian, he's a journalist, but he presents in his book a pretty interesting history of the rise and fall of industry in the U.S., the glass industry, but also other industries also. So it talks a little bit about unionization and the collapse of unionization, the rise of leveraged buyouts, and and the disasters that tend to come out of that. So it's an interesting book, Brian Alexander, Glasshouse. So from Plato to post-industrial America. Yeah, yeah, we're covering the entire span of human history here. There's, <laughs> yeah. a, there's a change over time and space that I was talking about. <laughs> exactly. exactly. We've, we've also thrown in some things about woolly mammoths and ancient Mexican culture. Yeah, so we covered this, it all. This was quite a wide-ranging conversation here. <laughs> it really was. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ricker. Thank you. Thank you both for having yes. me. I enjoyed thank you very much. Day. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you all for joining us today. This is probably a good place to point out that Dr. Ricker's discussion of the National Historic Preservation Act echoes some of the things that we talked about in a previous episode. Many of you hardcore filibusterers out there will remember my conversation with Jen Bryant way back in our third episode, where she talks about some of this from the perspective of the State Historic Preservation Office in Colorado. 
So I suggest you go check your notes or go back and re-listen to that episode. In the meantime, as always, if you have any questions or comments on this podcast, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. For the Jameses, Ricker and Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. Good day. No, no, I was going to do good day, like Australian, like Crocodile Dundee, but that would be embarrassing for all of us. So I'm just going to scratch that and just say good day.